You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat Podcast where baseball meets Broadway. An attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. Hello and welcome to Break a Bat. I'm your host, Sal Malafronte, coming at you for the Broadway Podcast Network. Uh, Today we're joined by a former Major League pitcher of 13 seasons. He was a 1997 All-Star for the San Francisco Giants when he won 19 games with a sparkling 3.18 ERA across 201 innings. He pitched on two playoff teams, won over 100 games in his career with 14 complete games and eight shutouts. He even started 23 games for our hometown New York Mets. And currently, he serves as one of the TV voices for the San Francisco Giants on NBC Sports Bay Area. And we're really happy he could join us. So if you'll please turn your attention to home plate, just beyond the marquee, now batting, Sean Estes. Sean, welcome. Al, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. And uh, it's nice to hear that, uh, uh, well, at least you, you, you uh, recapped my best season as a major leaguer in 1997. It, it didn't uh, go so well after that at times. But yes, that, that was definitely my uh, most enjoyable year as a, as a major leaguer. You had some awesome ones, Sean. And, you know, I know you're a pitcher and I use the now batting thing, you know, in these intros, because I mean, at least here in New York, you may be just as well known for your home run power as your pitching. Do you think that's an accurate statement? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. The, the, my tenure in New York didn't, didn't last too long and it was definitely, uh, uh, it was bittersweet to say the least, but you know, I, I definitely think that um, I did hit the biggest home run of my career. I, I didn't hit many of them. I only hit four. So, uh, but yeah, when you when you're able to to hit a home run off of Roger Clemens and and a game that was definitely watched, I think it was a nationally televised game. Um, that game was, and there was a lot of people in the stands that day for obvious reasons. But to be able to hit a home run off of Clemens definitely was a highlight of my career. Off, offensively, I should say, uh, offensively, not, not, not as far as on the mound, but offensively, it was the highlight of my career. Take me through that June day in 02. Clemens has to bat against the Mets for the first time since the Piazza incident. What's going on in the clubhouse that day when you really became part of Subway Series lore? Well, yeah, well, the lead up to that game was even probably more, more drama leading up to it than the actual game, uh, just based on the fact that uh, the, the media attention, I never really had that kind of media attention outside of like gearing up for a playoff game. And so right after I finished with my game, I believe I pitched against the White Sox prior to that game. The um, media, all they wanted to talk about was, yeah, you know who you're going to face in five days. And I was just like, well, I, I know I faced the Yankees because I've looked at the schedule and obviously they're a pretty good team. So I'm looking forward to that matchup. And they said, well, no, you're actually facing Roger Clemens. He's pitching for the Yankees. I didn't know the history of that until that day. I, I, I actually watched, I, I, I knew that Clemens had hit Piazza in the head in 2000, two years prior to this, but I didn't realize like that he was supposed to pitch at Shea stadium in 2001, came up with an injury prior to that start, did end up pitching that game. Um, I obviously saw all the stuff that happened in the World Series with the broken bat and Piazza, Clemens throwing the bat at Piazza. I knew all that stuff. 
but I wasn't aware of like that it hadn't been taken care of after the fact. So um, taken care of, I don't know that, that that all depends on who you ask of how it's taken care of. But yes, I happen to be the guy pitching against Clemens when Clemens pitched in Shea for the first time since that Piazza incident. So that's all the media wanted to talk about it. And then I was educated on really what, what was going down and what possibly was going to have to happen. It's funny in pitch in, in baseball, because there's not, there's never the talk of in the media, like, okay, I'm going to have to drill a guy based on what happened before, because if you do that, then obviously the umpires are on high alert. Then if it does happen, you're going to get thrown out of the game. That wasn't the nest that that wasn't what Bobby Valentine wanted to have happen. He wanted it to, to, to you know, kind of keep it on the down low up until the day of the game. And then and then obviously let the game let whatever happens in the game happen. But I doesn't I didn't talk to Piazza. I didn't talk to Bobby Valentine in any of those days leading up to the to this to my start that day, which I thought was kind of weird. I figured those would be the guys that would talk to me about what's up. I had some other teammates approach me, uh, Mo Vaughn, Robbie Alomar at the time and say, hey, we see what you're going through. We know what's at stake. We know what you have to do. Just go ahead and focus on pitching against the Yankees. They're good enough as it is. You have enough on your mind to go get those guys out. And so that kind of put my mind at ease a little bit because I was getting a little anxious about the start, you know, because it was more of a sideshow going on. So the day of the game, obviously, I, I mean, I'm, I'm nervous because I'm always nervous to, the day I pitch. And. Uh, there just seemed to be a little bit bigger buzz going on around the stadium when I walked into the clubhouse that day and kind of everybody leaves you alone as a starting pitcher and nobody really makes eye contact with you, but no one really made eye contact with me at all that day. And then I was about ready to go out to the mound to warm up or to the field to warm up at a half hour before game time after doing my whole routine in the clubhouse. And then I get the, you know, Bobby Valentine as I'm passing his office and Hey, 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 Sean, come in here for a second. So I go in the office and it's Bobby and it's, it's Mike Piazza and they're sitting there and they said, well, and Bobby said, well, you know, we, we obviously, you obviously know what's going on because you've been dealing with this the past four days. And, um, I know you weren't here back in 2000, but, uh, and really he just matter of factly said, so here's the sign. If, 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 uh, you need to throw at him, that, that was it. So Mike, Mike's over there sitting on a chair and he shows me what sign he's going to use. Um, you know, because I'm not going to just go out there and throw at Roger Clemens till I hit him. Um, you know, that if he would have said to do that, then I would have done it, but that wasn't the conversation. The conversation was if the time of the game, if it fits, if it works out, just know, here's the sign. So of course he comes up in the third inning, I believe I throwing a pretty good game up to that point And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, like he comes up and, and now I'm like, am I going to get the sign here? Nobody's on base. So I figured that I probably would. So then automatically the, the heart rate starts to pick up a little bit. You get a little bit more adrenaline and only because like, I felt like that if I missed him, that that might be my only chance. And so, you know, it's, it's, you don't really practice throwing at people. You practice throwing strikes to a spot <laughs> to a catcher. The catcher set up to a spot. You, you practice. You don't practice hitting people. So it's a little harder than it looks, uh, especially when the hitter knows it's coming. Right. So if I'm gonna, if I set you up, Al, and I and I sixty feet away, and I said, Al, I'm gonna throw this baseball as hard as I can at you, 
you're probably going to have a better chance of getting out of the way than if I say, hey, why don't you try to why don't you try to hit this pitch? Then you're digging in, you're looking for a pitch to hit. So anyway, he he uh he, I got the sign and I reached back and threw it as hard as I could. I wasn't trying to hit him above the waist just because I'm not going to try to end anybody's career. And I threw it and it went right behind him and he just leaned forward a little bit and uh, I missed him. And I was like, oh my gosh, I go, that was my one shot. Because if you throw it behind somebody, I knew right away that that both benches were going to be worn. So anyway, so that happened and if everybody's like booing, uh, you know, it's like everybody was anticipating that moment. So they're booing and I'm like, oh my gosh, I missed him. That's the worst thing that could have happened. I said, well, maybe I'll get the sign again and I'll just, I'll try to hit him again. And if I do, I'll get thrown out of the game. Big deal. You know? Um, and I didn't get the sign again. So I pitched to him and then, you know, we end up, I end up hitting a home run off of him later on in the game and he ends up, you know, getting knocked out of the game and we beat him. And I have one of my best games as a Met. I didn't have many games as a Met, but I had one of my many good games as a Met, but I had my best game as a New York Met. We beat the Yankees. I believe it was seven to zero or something like that. I don't even know what the score was, but we won the game. I didn't score a run, but obviously like the aftermath of that was, was, uh, I guess less than, uh, it was, it was just one of those things where like, I, I just had pitched a great game, but, no one wanted to talk about that. You know, they wanted to talk about that. I'm me missing Clemens. So like I said, it was a bittersweet day for me. Um, my teammates were pumped about it, but, uh, but the fans obviously had, 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 uh, had wanted more out of that outing. You talk about your highs as a New York Met. And although I am a Yankee fan, I was at Shea stadium on an April night, of 2002 and you took a perfect game into the seventh inning against Milwaukee and it ended up in a complete game one hitter uh you shut out the Brewers one of the best games I've ever seen pitch live you had eight strikeouts is that you know from a performance perspective does that one rank up there for you as well and if so what did you have working for you that night yeah for sure it did yeah um like I mentioned I didn't have many great games as a Met uh we talked about one of them with the Clemens uh, the Clemens game, but that was probably even better yet. It wasn't the Yankees. So it was the Brewers. So, you know, there wasn't, and there wasn't as much, you know, at stake on the game, but, um, but yeah, I remember facing Glendon rush in that game who, who had pitched for the Mets, I think the year prior, and he was pitching a great game as well. It was back and forth. I mean, I think he only get, we win the game one to zero. He only gives up a run. Um, and so that, that I had to be on my top of my game. And I remember just, I don't remember what was working that day. Usually if I have a good game like that, it's because I have my curveball, and I'm able to, you know, I have that working. I can throw it for strikes. I can throw it for, you know, I can strike guys out with it. I'm usually have pretty good command with my fastball. Probably had a good change up. I probably had all three pitches working because in order to not give up hips, you hits in a game, you have to have everything working for you. Um, but I just remember it, it might've been zero, zero, even at that point when I gave up my first hit, I can't remember. You might know more about that game than I do Al, as far as how we scored offensively. But I remember it just being a pitcher's duel and I was just trying to keep the Brewers from scoring. Um, but you are aware of a no hitter. Yeah. I'd say probably around the fourth, fifth inning, you start to become more cognizant of it. And I just remembered leading off the seventh inning. It was Eric Young 
who 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 had um I believe it was Eric Young. Um he led off the seventh inning and I remember throwing a change up and I left it up just a little bit and he ended up hitting a line drive into left field. Is that what you remember? Because that's how I remember it break how they remember breaking it, it being broken up. Uh and then I was thinking, like, well, that that's kind of a bummer because I really felt like I had my no hit stuff that day. And you don't, even when you have no hit stuff, you typically don't throw a no hitter, right? You usually have a pretty good game, but you don't throw, you don't have an opportunity. And when you get that deep in the game, you're starting to sniff like nine outs to go. This could happen. So he gets the leadoff single in the seventh and it was all over, but that was it. That was all they got. And uh, we ended up winning one zero and I threw a shutout. So that was definitely, I would say one, one a being the Clemens game. That was a one B game for sure. Now, the last thing I want to touch on as far as your time with the Mets goes, I mean, you mentioned Alomar and Vaughn before. They brought in a lot of big names that offseason, yourself included. Roger Cedeno was there as well, I remember. And uh, there were a lot of expectations on that team. And, you know, there were some trials and tribulations that went on along the way that derailed things a bit. A lot of guys underperformed. Um, but there was also a scandal involving many of your teammates and the use of marijuana and most of them ended up getting kicked off the team at the time were the rest of the guys in the locker room, including yourself aware of what was going on with that. You know, I mean, geez, it, it's now it, this is back what 18 years ago, I guess, you know, uh, smoking marijuana was a big deal. Um, it seems like nowadays it's a little bit more, I think it would be accepted more so than it would have been back then. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was aware that there was guys on the team, but I mean, every team I was on, there was, there was guys that would smoke marijuana. You know I mean? I was just, that, that was just kind of like, it was recreation. I was like, you know, it was almost like going out for a drink. Right. I mean, uh, it depends on who you talk to, but some people probably even, would even argue that marijuana is probably better for you than, than going out and, and getting drunk, you know? So, and it keeps you in your room at night, uh, helps you sleep whatever the benefits are, what, you know, there were some guys on the team that that would do that. You know, I think the name, uh, and Grant Roberts was the guy that ended up being the fall guy. I think he was, it was more about a black, it was a blackmail scandal more than anything. I guess it was a, a, a girl that he was dating at the time. Um, you know, she used that against him. She had taken a picture of him smoking marijuana, maybe out of a bong, if I remember correctly, that was, I think the head, I think that was the front page of the times or the post, I believe it was. Um, and he wanted, she wanted money from him and it, or she said, if you don't give me money and I don't even know what the disclosed amount was, but I will, I will, uh, you'll pay, right. I'll, I have this picture of you. So she, he said, no, <laughs> he didn't give her any money. And, and so she sent the picture of the post and that's what ends up on the front page. It was unfortunate. Grant was a good guy. I mean, he was a great guy. He was a great reliever for us. One of the few guys that was pitching well at the time, but that pretty much derailed his career. Um, but yeah, I, I don't remember what your question was as far as regards to that goes, but, um, but yeah, that was a, a year where everything that could go wrong did uh, from that incident with Grant to me missing Clemens to, <laughs> Us losing 13 straight games at one point. I fortunately got traded during that stretch of that streak of losses uh, because that was a miserable time. And, you know, you know, when you're not, you're a fan. So when you're not playing well in New York, it becomes a very difficult place to show up to, to play every day. 
you almost are looking forward to getting on the road. You, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't want to be at home. You, the boo birds are out. Jeremy Burnitz was another guy that you didn't mention that was brought over on that team. And he just had a hole in his bat that year. This is a guy that had a ton of power. I'd played against him when he was on the Brewers. Big time power. Uh, home run guy. Had some good years leading up to going to being in New York. But for whatever reason, he just he just had – it felt like he swung and missed more than I've ever seen a teammate swing and miss in my life. Um, and then he, I played with him on the Rockies two years later, and he was mashing again. So it was just one of those seasons that just started getting in your head. And they started booing him before he even got out to the to on-deck circle. And then we had guys that were hurt, some big names. I mean, obviously Piazza, Mo Vaughn, Robbie Alomar, Ray, Ray Odonez, uh, Edgardo Alfonso, Roger Cedeno, Jeremy Burnitz. Um and I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out some guys. They they brought me and Jeff D'Amico, Pedro Astacio. I mean, there was high expectations on that team to go along with Al Leiter and Steve Traxel. Uh, but we just really, to a man, all underperformed. I believe that, you know, when we started playing bad, started playing poorly and guys started getting hurt, it just made it even worse. It just snowballed from there because, because it just, you know, just being in that environment coming to the yard every day, knowing that you're hoping that you're going to win rather than like knowing you're going to win. It's just not a good place to be. And then the fans, obviously they have high expectations and we didn't meet those. And so they were hard on us as they should have been. You know, Sean, we're here on the Broadway podcast network. Uh, this show celebrates both baseball and theater and you have very passionate fans on both ends of the spectrum as a player for the Mets, or even when you'd come in as an opponent, did you catch many Broadway shows? You know what? I did not. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually, I've seen some Broadway shows, but I'm trying to remember when I actually saw them. Um, as a player, not so much. And the problem was, is it players that you play so many night games? And New York, for whatever reason at that time, they, they used to always start at 740. So we'd have, we had the latest start times in Major League Baseball. And so we wouldn't be done a lot of times till 1030, 11 o'clock at night till you get out of the yard. It's 1130. Um, we're obviously playing out in Queens. And, and uh, I lived in the Upper East Side when I played there that year. So because I, I love the city. I love Manhattan. And so I would try to I, I wanted to really experience, you know, living in New York for the first time after visiting for all these years as a visiting player. But you know, you'd have to take advantage of that on off days. Um, and I never really did because I would, if, if there was a concert on an off day, that's what I was doing. I, I was a big music. I am still a big music guy. So I caught a bunch of concerts, uh, but not as many Broadway plays as, as I probably should have um, living in the city. But as you know, as a, as a, as a, as a visiting the city since then, you know, I, I've been back a handful of times and, 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 and seen some shows. So, um, yeah, no, I, 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 but I did get to see, you know, I radio city. I obviously saw some, some concerts there. I got to see the white stripes and the strokes play there. Um, you know, I've been to the, the beacon quite a few times. So I see some shows there. Um, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a great, a great city to enjoy that, that part of the city, you know, obviously Broadway and then concerts, all the big concerts come through there. So I enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. 
You mentioned you're a big music guy. Next time you're here, I think the one you have to see once live theater comes back is Rock of Ages. And actually, Araldus Chapman, Yankee All-Star Closer, he's a pretty big fan of theater and all things theatrical. He was actually at Rock of Ages last summer and he took photos with the cast backstage. Uh, I don't, you know, you watch current baseball, obviously. What do you think it is about Chapman that makes such a perfect fit for the entertainment industry? I'm not sure. I mean, he he seems. I mean, he's a pretty intense guy when he goes out there and pitches. I wasn't aware that he was a fan of uh, of Broadway, Rock of Ages. Uh, I don't know him all that well, but as far as just a you know watching him pitch, um, he keeps things pretty calm, cool, and collected out there. And he's pitching an inning where things can go haywire in a hurry. I mean, the the guy definitely has the the benefit of a hundred mile an hour fastball from the left side. Um, and he can throw strikes and, you know, he commands and he's got a great slider to go with it. But, uh, one of the most dominant closers uh, of, of this generation for sure. Uh, but I wasn't aware of his interests off the field at all. So that, that's, that's kind of a good, that's good to know about guys, you know, I mean, you like to see that they're just not all baseball, you know, 24 seven, that they have other interests. Cause I was one of those guys that did, I, I enjoyed food. So I enjoyed took advantage of the restaurant scene in New York and I enjoyed, I enjoy music. So I took advantage of that as well. Um, and, and some guys just don't, don't do that enough. They, they just get so focused. They put their blinders on it's in it's baseball 24 seven. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe they feel like that when they're done playing, they can take advantage of that stuff. But I had a lot more other interests than just going out and throwing a baseball. It's funny. You had mentioned the velocity. It's, I guess it is at least for us as Yankee fans, it's kind of like a theatrical experience when he takes center stage. But, you know, Sean, you're primarily known for your time with the uh, San Francisco Giants. And, you know, you play on some great Giant teams, done better than those squads. Like that 97 team was fantastic. 2000, I remember you guys had the best record in the NL. You were a huge part of it. And I think it's kind of interesting when you look back on different eras of Giant baseball, there's kind of been different chapters, right? You had the most recent dynasty um, but before that, it was what you guys did with Bonds and Kent and Aurelia. Um, and you were a huge part of it. And, you know, they were one of the most exciting teams in baseball at the time. Do you have a defining thought that comes to mind uh, when you played on those teams? That we, yes. I mean, the defining thought was is that, um, and the reason why I, I can say that now is because I was on the 02 Mets that, you know, we were out of it pretty, <laughs> we were out of it by the All Star break, um, is that those teams were always competitive every year. Every time, with maybe the exception of the 97 team that we ended up surprising everybody because we finished last in 96 in the NL West, and uh, we surprised everybody and won our division that year. That was probably, I wouldn't say low expectations, at least not in our clubhouse, but as far as the media is concerned, a lot of teams, a lot of media picked us to finish third or fourth that year. Um, we felt we had a better team than that, but for the most part, every year that I was there, we came into spring training with the ex expectation of making the playoffs. Um, and Brian Sabian, our general manager at the time, did a really nice job of keeping our team competitive by adding free agents, making trades, um, extending contracts, things like that to keep us, you know, all, you know, competitive in that division. And so every year, you know, we, we went out there with the expectation that we can win a World Series. We felt like that we had that kind of club. We also had a, a, a really nice centerpiece to that club, a guy that you could build a team around and Barry Bonds, you know, maybe if not, you know, the best player ever, definitely the best player in my generation. Um, so 
I think that's the defining thing is that, you know, I think everybody wants to enjoy coming to work every day. And I talked about that O2 Mets team. It wasn't fun to come to work anymore, you know, because you didn't have the expectations that you were going to win that day. And, you know, the fans were hard on you. Is and the fans are and the fans can be rough on you in San Francisco too. Yet, you know, we were playing a candlestick at, you know, for more, most of my career. And wasn't many people there, you know, the, we averaged about 20,000 a game. And then I ended up going, opening up the new ballpark and we were packed every night. So you started hearing the boo birds a little bit more when, when you didn't play as well yet we had good teams. So you didn't hear them, but yeah, it, it I think the work environment just playing for the giants was, was second to none. Uh, you know, just from top down, it, it made me feel they do a really nice job too of bringing back alumni. They do a nice job of making you feel like if you play one year with the Giants, they make you feel like family. Uh, so that's why I ended up really going back and doing what I'm doing now and broadcasting for the Giants because I live in Arizona. I could have easily done something with the Diamondbacks and worked at home, but my roots were there. There's a lot of familiar faces still, ownership and management there front office people are still there. It just felt like home to me. Uh, and so now I, you know, I, uh, up until this year, I would fly to San Francisco and, and do my gig up there and I'd be back and forth. Um, so really it's, it, I felt the it with the giants, it was the, the family and it was just a competitive group of guys every year they, with a chance to, to win. And that's, is a player, all you can ask for from management. What was more intense? Dodgers, Giants, or Yankees, Mets? Well, if we're talking about the game against Clemens, the Yankees, Mets, for sure. <laughs> but I would say, <laughs> I would say, on average, based on just because I here's here's how I how I relate the those um the I, I would say Yankees, Red Sox may be more intense, um, but Giants, Dodgers, I would say when we played in Candlestick, it was a bigger deal because. Like I mentioned before, it was a, it was just not a great place to watch a game. It was cold. Uh, we're talking like middle of July. You're, it's 40 degrees, 50 degrees out there. The fog rolls in around 5 o'clock every night, and it just drops the temp about 20, 30 degrees. And so wind's whipping around. you got hot dog wrappers flying all over the place. People are trying to stay warm, and they're like, this is summer. We're supposed to go to a baseball game and be warm and enjoy watching baseball. But – so we got, like I said, we averaged about 20,000 a game. So, but when the Dodgers came in and we're a candlestick, so it's a football stadium. So it held almost 55,000 people. It was big. And we would have 55,000 people chant and beat LA from the first game to the last in a three game series. So you knew when LA came into town because the ballpark was packed. So I think that definitely magnified that, that, uh, that rivalry. Now I felt like the Giants going down to LA, it didn't feel like as a big as a big deal to the Dodger fans. You know, I mean, they hated the Giants, but it just didn't have that same vibe around it. Um, I still feel like it has it even in the new ballpark when LA comes in, but it's not as noticeable only because it didn't go from it doesn't go from twenty thousand to fifty five thousand. It goes from forty thousand to forty four thousand, right? So you 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 see a little bit more blue and white in the stands. But for the most part, you know, it, it, it's not as loud and as raucous. The players definitely, as a player, I always felt the rivalry, though. But from a fan's perspective, it's changed a little bit. Now, you played with some great talent in San Francisco. I touched on Jeff Kent earlier. And here on the show, the Hall of Fame is a bit of a hot topic. Um, 
Jeff Kent, I saw a Hall of Fame second baseman playing. You, He played behind you. You got to see him win an MVP award. Like I said, most home runs by a second baseman, you know, middle of the order force for some great teams. In your mind, does he belong in the Hall of Fame? I do. I think he does. Um, I don't have all the numbers in front of me to make a to make a statistical argument, but I just have the eye test. And um, he was definitely a Hall of Famer against me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, he's a pl- obviously I played with him for six years, but. Uh, after I left the Giants, or after they traded me, and then I played in the in the NL West with the Rockies, Diamondbacks, and Padres, and he was on the uh, on the Dodgers as well. After that, I ended up facing him way too many times. So uh, he definitely have Hall of Fame numbers against me. But yeah, I, I, I as a as as a teammate, you know, get to see him every day. Just you know, obviously, and if you ask Barry Bonds, you she'll tell you the same thing that that. You know, if he had Barry hitting behind him, Jeff Kent became a lot better because, you know, Jeff Kent got pitched to. And, you know, Barry, obviously, you know, he's he's a guy that's I don't know what the word to use for him, but um, he, he's a guy that, that that believed in his abilities a lot. <laughs> so he felt like he probably should have won the MVP of the year that Kent did. And if, if it wasn't for him, Kent wouldn't have won the MVP. And the only reason I'm even bringing that up is because it's, it's been well documented that Kent and Bonds didn't necessarily get along all the time. So uh, there was a little bit of probably jealousy there on Barry's end based on Jeff getting that MVP and probably felt he had a lot to do with it. But Jeff Kent earned that MVP that year. He was just clutch. And that's how I, 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 I view Jeff Kent as just a clutch player. He's a guy that you'd want up there when you needed a hit. When you needed a big hit, home run, double, single, whatever it is, and the game's on the line, he's the one a guy I wanted up there. And so, and he and he delivered a lot of times. So I, I just I feel like that he's a Hall of Famer just because obviously the numbers speak for themselves. Um defensively he was a little underrated I felt like I felt like that people looked at him as a as an offense first guy which he was but he would make the routine defensive play and I'll tell you what sometimes he would make some some really nice plays he had a strong arm so he would make up for some range with his arm uh but you know you can't hall of famers aren't always great defensively it's all about the offense and hall with the hall of fame um so yeah I believe he should be in the hall of fame 100 percent were you and Barry tight? Nobody was tight with Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Barry, Barry's I've, I've been around Barry quite a bit since we were done playing. Um, obviously I played with them for six years, but since we both retired and like I said, giants are good about bringing alumni back and they, 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 they celebrate everything. Um, every anniversary possible. They celebrate, they celebrate their good teams over the years. Um, so I've seen Barry, you know, quite a few times post career and he's, he's great to be around. He's a pleasure to be around now. I mean, cause he's, he doesn't have the pressure of going out there and having to perform every day and be the man. Um, he's able to relax a little bit and just be himself. Um, and, and he's, he's, he's a fun guy to be around. I mean, he, he's, he, he is. So, and I wouldn't say we're tight, but, um, I probably got along with him better than a lot of people did when we played, you know, and, and uh, I just let him be, be do his thing. You know, I mean, it was, it was pretty much, you knew what you're going to get out of Barry. Um, 
you know, he, he was just a focused player and, um, he felt a lot of pressure to, to just go out there and perform every day. And that was his way of dealing with it to be, you know, to be at times a little crusty, um, to be moody at times, whatever it took for him to motivate himself to go out there and, and be good that day he did. So I respected that because I wanted him on my team. I didn't want him on any other team. I, I wanted him uh, helping us win ball games. Um, and you know, your family is as much as you can be like, you don't love all your family either, but you're, you know, you're, you know, you, you, you're forced to be around each other. And so you try to make the best of it. I wonder if he's getting in the hall of fame. Um, the, you know, from your experiences with him in recent years, does it seem to bother him that, you know, a lot of people are holding the steroid allegations against him? Well, I mean, I don't want to say I know for a hundred percent fact, but I, I know for a hundred percent fact that there's guys in the hall of fame right now that have done steroids. So, uh, based on knowing what I know, um, if the floodgates are open, I'd say, let them open. You know, I mean, why, why obviously bonds and the whole Balco incident and then how he handled that by fighting it, you know, and going to court and all that stuff. And, I think that that definitely hurt him more than it helped him. Um, as far as all, as far as the hall of fame goes, um, it's going to, the same goes for Roger Clemens. Um, but like I said, there's already guys in there that have done steroids and their numbers definitely were inflated because of steroids. Not to say that they weren't great players as it was. I mean, Barry Bonds, in my opinion, would have been a hall of famer, you know, had he not had all the issues. Um, but he's definitely a Hall of Famer number-wise, and I think he should get in. I think he will get in at some point. I do. I think if it's Veterans Committee, whatever it is, the Hall of Fame is going to change quite a bit as far as how, how guys get in and how things are voted upon. They're always making tweaks and adjustments on that. And and, and eventually it'll it'll be adjusted to the point where Barry Bonds will be a Hall of Famer. And, and I'll be honest with you, he should be. And so should Clemens. And so should McGuire. So they all should be. That's a strong statement from a guy who played with and against those guys. Well, Al, and, uh, Al, you know, Al I'll tell you something right now is that it, I, it took me a long time to come around to this only because as someone who didn't do them and as someone that had to compete against guys that were doing and in, in the prime of steroids, it really comes down to them taking food off my table because you know, I, it was, it was, it was a lot more difficult to be really good then as a pitcher. And I, I'll tell you what, it even makes what guys that did the guys that didn't do steroids, even pitching wise that didn't do them to be really successful during that era, a la Greg Maddox, um, even more impressive what they did to be that good in spite of, uh, what they were up against. You know, they're already at a disadvantage pitching pitchers were. Now, I, I wasn't as aware of pitchers doing them as I am now. Not that pitchers are doing them now, but like now I didn't realize that there were so many pitchers doing them as well when I played. I just never thought that storage were something that would benefit me as a pitcher. I thought that they made you bulky. They made you tight. They made you like pull muscles. I mean, I thought it was a football drug. You know, you just, it was a strength drug, you know, to go out there and, and, and be able to physically, your body to physically be able to go out there and like handle being, being pounded every day. Um, so I didn't think it would have benefited me as a pitcher. I needed to stay flexible. I needed to have my mobile, I needed to have my range of motion. 
but I guess there's steroids that would help with recovery and they would help with, um, you know, they had guys who throw harder because of them. So, um, you know, I guess that level the playing field a little bit if pitchers are doing them. But, you know, all in all, I, I felt like more position players, more hitters were doing steroids than pitchers. And as a pitcher, you're, you're at a total disadvantage. So my, my, my opinion on that was for a long time that nobody that did steroids should get into the Hall of Fame, period. But then there's that gray area of like who did them and who didn't. So how if you, you can't make that, no one can for 100% positively make that make the statement that that guy was doing them unless they were caught red handed. So if there's guys that I know were doing them, they're in the hall of fame, then I'd say if you have the numbers to get in the hall of fame, regardless of, of, of the issues that you've had to deal with, you should be there. Cause there's pictures in my opinion that are in there that have done them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I certainly have my own speculations as well. Um, you know, you're on the media side of things now and you talk about pitching so much has changed about the way starting pitchers are used, the way the game is played. And obviously you're in the media now, uh, are there parts about the way it's changed compared to your game that have made your job more difficult? And what do you still enjoy about, about baseball in 2020? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's made my job more difficult. It's, it's definitely made me have to like, just kind of think differently, um, because obviously when I came up and even at the end of my career, for that matter, it, none of this defensive shifting had come into play yet. I mean, a defensive shift when I played was if a, you know, a guy up the middle, up the middle of the field, a position, a, a shortstop or a second baseman could see the signs from the catcher and they knew about pitches I was throwing. They'd move a step or two to the right or left. <laughs> that was a shift. Like if, if they knew I was throwing a curveball, there's a better chance the right-handers are going to pull it on the ground, so they're going to go their left a little bit, uh, their right a little bit. I mean, that was, and you didn't notice it as a pitcher. Uh, and also, when you got the ball as a starting pitcher, you you got the ball to finish the game. That that's what that's the, that's the mentality. I want to pitch a complete game. And obviously, you mentioned earlier. I think I had 14 in my career. That's not many, but my mentality was to go out there and throw a complete game. Now. Pitch count would come into play. Effectiveness would come into play. Um, but managers felt that their starting pitchers were their best player, best pitchers that they had on their staff, maybe with the exception being their closer. So they wanted their best pitchers to have the ball in their hand as long as possible. So they would let you go 110, 120, 130 pitches if, you, if they felt like that you were strong and you were still effective in getting hitters out they'd let you pitch through through some traffic on the bases they'd let you try to pitch out of jams um they'd come out and talk to you how you feeling that the the manager would do this they'd want to see how you're feeling look you in the eye and say you know how how, how you feeling and they could if they felt like they could read you if you were blowing smoke then they would get you out of the game but if they felt like that you were focused and you still had something left in the tank they'd leave you out there so that that's changed a lot obviously approach by by hitters has changed there's just no two strike approach anymore it's it's the two strike approach is still to try to hit the ball hard and or hit the ball out of the ballpark there's no choking up on the bat staying up the middle part of the field trying to take a pitch the other way cutting down your swing just try to get on base people were embarrassed to strike out when i played if you struck out 150 times 200 times a year it's embarrassing 
So hitters would go up there and try not to strike out. I mean, that, they took a lot of pride on not striking out. So it's changed in a lot of facets based on pitchers' pitch counts, um, the usage of bullpens now, because now bullpen players or pitchers are being paid more. There's more specialty guys that like there was the lefty guys. Those are not those those guys aren't as is a big of an asset now because they have to face three batters minimum. So that's changed. But just as far as just the arms, how fast guys are throwing. And to go out and have them in the bullpen now, those are guys that you're going to go to earlier on in the game, you know, because, you know, you're not going to leave a guy down there that throws 100 and pitch him every fourth, fifth day, you know. Uh, those guys are – you're going to utilize your bullpen because they have such good arms and they they're strikeout – they have the ability to strike players out. So bullpen usage, starter usage with pitch counts, and then just hitters approach. And obviously defensive shifts – um, are taking a lot of hits away from hitters. That's why now you hear about launch angle and guys trying to leave the ballpark and get it in the air because if they put the ball on the ground now, more times than not, the defensive players are where they're hitting it. You know, you see a guy smoke a ball on the ground to the right side of lefty, and all of a sudden you see the second baseman playing in short right field. He makes the play and he's out. Where you know, ten years ago, that's a base hit ten times out of ten. You know, you got rewarded for hitting the ball hard on the ground. Now. It's an out a lot of times. So now guys are trying to lift the ball in the air and hit it out of the ballpark. Hence, a lot more home runs, a lot more strikeouts. So it's a different game now. Um, I still love the game. I still enjoy watching it. I still enjoy learning more about it. Um, so the base baseball is still baseball. There's 27 outs to get unless you go to extra innings. There's no time. There's no. There's no time clock. There's no game clock out there. So. Uh, you can just sit back and watch the game, um, and you you know it is what it is. Games are going to adjust; it's going to evolve, and this is what we've evolved into right now. Sean, this is awesome. I could really talk baseball with you all day. We do one segment to wrap every show. It's called Fastball Derby, and just think of it like this: I'll ask you a question, you say the first thing that comes to your mind. How does that sound? Sounds great. Yeah. Favorite New York City meal? Pizza. Toughest hitter you ever had to face? Gary Sheffield. How about a guy you owned? Jeff Bagwell. Pretty good name right there to follow up with Gary <laughs> Sheffield. Just you know, throw a Hall of Famer out there. Pretty nice. Most uncomfortable Barry Bonds, Jeff Kent moment. Uh, dugout, San Diego. 1999 or 2000. I can't remember what year. Teammates of yours that would perform best in the roles of Timon and Pumbaa in The Lion King on Broadway. <laughs> I don't. That's too hard, man. <laughs> you have to give me some personality <laughs> traits of both those. Both those lines. Timon is is a lion. You haven't watched it, if you haven't watched, I have watched it, but I just it's been a long time. <laughs> Timon's a lion. What? What is Timon? Timon's the little meerkat, and uh, Pumbaa is the warthog. Oh, so not even the lions. <laughs> Simba. I know Simba was a lion. Simba was a lion. Yeah, you had some. You played with some real ferocious guys. And you play with the home run king. So if you want to say that Barry Bonds is Simba, that's fine too. Let's just say Barry Bonds for all of them. <laughs> Barry he, Bonds for all of them. Because right. he, 
because <laughs> he was a moody guy. He could, he could, he could, uh, he could be a lot of different animals. Proudest moment of your career. Mm, make an all-star team in 97. And lastly, best piece of advice anyone ever gave you. And what was it? Um, hard work, work hard. I mean, work hard, outwork your opponent. That was the best outwork your opponent. You know, it's funny that Derek Jeter once said he was one of my guys growing up. Uh, there's always going to be somebody better, but never let them outwork. Yeah. So right. A lot of the, I would use that as my mental team. edge. Cause I was felt if I outworked, if I out, if I worked, if I outworked my opponent, and who knows how hard they're working. But if I felt like I outworked my opponent, that I had the edge mentally. Sean, this has been so awesome. Seriously, like I said before, I could literally talk baseball with you all day. And I know we're headed towards uh, the pennant run here. Obviously, uh, baseball's a little different this year. But if you ever want to come back on Break a Bat, we'd certainly love to have you. Thank you so much. Al, I enjoyed it. It's great talking ball with you, man. Absolutely. Well, that'll close out the ball game here on Break a Bat. This is Al Malafrante signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Break a Bat. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabat. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast and you can also find the broadway podcast network on instagram at broadway podcast network it's been so great having you here with us today and we'll see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.